Good morning. Hey, I'm glad to see you all here this morning. We're going to read this morning from Philippians chapter 1. We've been walking through this identity check series, and Todd took the, the last segment last Sunday. And we're going to pick this up again this morning. We're talking about our new confidence. I don't know if you woke up this morning and you thought, I'm confident about today, but uh, hopefully you will be by the time you go home. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray for joy, or with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, creator of the universe, thank you for inviting us into your presence, inviting us to call on your name. We come through Jesus who sits at your right hand, who's our Lord, our Savior, and your Son. He's the victor and the conqueror over sin and death and all that is broken. And we look forward to the day when he will come again that this passage from Philippians talks about, the day of Christ. We look forward to it. We wait for it. We know there's a day coming when you will make all things right, when you will put together heaven and earth, when you will remove the, the brokenness and the evil of life, and when you will reward those who follow you and who trust in you and who put you first in their lives. Make us ready for that time. Use today, use each day of our lives to draw us closer and closer to you. We invite you to make us more like Jesus. Thank you for the fact that you welcome people as we are, and so we come to you with all of the trials of our lives, with all the brokenness of our lives, with all the difficulties that we face. Help us here together, not only to receive each other, but to continue to open our arms to people who are searching, people who are looking for truth, people who are looking to find you. You've already made this an unusual gathering of people, a wonderful gathering of people, but we ask that you would enrich our gathering even more over the coming years. Make this a place where the abused and the accused equally find that they are welcome and that there is a God who holds out hope for each one. 
allow this to be a place where those who need a spiritual hospital can find rest and healing and wholeness. We ask that you would continue to have your way inside of our thoughts and our minds and bring our minds and our bodies to a place where everything works together and where there's wholeness. When you take all the broken pieces and sew them back together one by one. And we ask that you would use us. Allow us to each find our purpose and why you have wired us up the way that you have. Allow us to make a difference in this world. And allow us to be instruments of grace as you work through us in surprising ways. Lord, I thank you for each person here. I ask that you'd hear our prayers, the silent ones that we, we offer to you and don't share with anybody else, and the ones that we've been pleading with you for years and years for you to answer. We think of all of the, the wayward children in our lives. We think of all of those who've, who've shaken their fists at you and walked away. And we ask that you would draw them back. We ask that you'd work in the heart of every teen, every young child here who's a part of this family, and allow each one to find their way into your arms of comfort and strength. And now open our ears and our hearts to what you would have to say to us through this message and through this passage of Scripture. Allow it to become alive for us. In Jesus' name, amen. What role does confidence play in our lives? Does inner confidence affect your ability to accomplish your goals or to work through difficult tasks? What impact does confidence have in the way that you serve others or in the way that you live out your faith? Here are a few things that researchers today are discovering about the impact of confidence. Dr. Barbara Markaway writes that Confidence is linked to almost every element involved in a happy and fulfilling life, including less fear and anxiety, greater motivation and more resiliency in handling setbacks and failure. The studies that she was citing in her article tell us that even body language and follow-through is mirrored in those expectations, so that when we're expected to win, performances tend to trend upward in our lives. Dr. Barry Kaufman adds to that. He writes that confidence impacts our ability to perform. He cited a growing body of research that reveals that when people are put in situations where they're expected to fail, their performances spiral downward. In other words, whatever other people expect of us and we expect of ourselves, our minds and our bodies tend to head in those directions. Some of you are familiar with self-improvement guru Tony Robbins. He wrote this about the role of confidence. Learning how to be confident is important in every part of your life, but there are some instances where it's crucial, especially where you feel like giving up. If you are a leader and in a position that requires being convincing and trustworthy, being confident is non-negotiable. No one will follow a leader who appears unsure of themselves. Lack of confidence can seriously impact your ability to put together a winning team and guide them to achieving your shared goals. He goes on. He says, even if you're not in a leadership role, confidence is vital to being a team player in many situations. Whether you're in a sales position or need to present a confident face during frequent client interactions, 
Being confident helps you make instant connections and build friendships that will ensure you and your, and your company will succeed. All right, here's the reason for bringing all of this up. Long before business coaches and psychologists latched on to the importance of confidence, the Apostle Paul wrote about a handful of things that he was confident about in regard to the role that we play as Christians in the midst of this world. And we're going to talk about those things this morning. We're going to explore that idea today within our Identity Check series. If you remember, a few weeks ago, I explained that we are calling this series Identity Check, Exploring My Identity in Christ. And if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, my hope is that this series will help you grow in confidence and know who you are in God's eyes. It is my conviction that with all the shifts that are going on in our culture today, that for you to be secure in your identity, you need to understand who you are in the eyes of God first before the world tries to tell you who you are. If you're kicking the tires and you're checking out whether Christian faith is for you, I want you to know that the Bible details a handful of things that Christians can be uniquely confident about, and this can be true for you too. So part four of this series today is called Our New Confidence. Let me say good morning to everybody here. I'm glad that you're here today. Welcome to our North River Worship Center, and for those of you who are watching online with us, thank you for making this a part of your day or your morning. I look forward to connecting with you as you let us know who you are and as you fill out those connection cards. We'd, we'd love to be in touch with you. But uh, let, me, let me thank you for making this a part of your day. Let me also offer my appreciation to Pastor Todd, who picked up the load last Sunday, kind of in a pinch as Sue and I flew off to Chicago to tend to a family member, and it was kind of a sudden deal. Here's the question that I think is behind this morning's message today. What confidence can I have as a Christian? Are we meant to be confident about some things, and, and how does that impact us if we do share this confidence? I'd like to walk you through four aspects of confidence that the Apostle Paul includes within a, a prayer that is part of Philippians chapter 1. So we're going to talk about our new confidence. Here's the first thought. This is a confidence that God has begun a new work in you. The first half of Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you. Verse 6 is where the Apostle Paul begins to talk about this confidence. Now, we know a number of things about Paul and about this letter. We know that Paul was writing from jail because he tells us here in the opening chapter that he was in chains and that he was writing this letter from prison. He was writing to the church in the city of Philippi about which he knew a lot and about whom he cared a lot. The first followers of Jesus in the city of Philippi were led to faith by Paul. Yet the beginning of his ministry there was soaked in a, mi in a mix of joy and controversy. Let me just unpack that for you very quickly. Uh, there was Lydia, a, a businesswoman who was the first one to put her faith in Jesus from the city of Philippi. She trusted in Jesus along with others from her household. They were all baptized by Paul in the nearby river. And her home became the first meeting place for the church in Philippi. So it's very likely that as Paul is writing this letter, he's sending it back to Lydia's home. Then there was a servant girl who Paul had freed from demonic possession. 
that act of kindness and the local reaction to it landed Paul and his partner Silas in jail for a night. They were openly beaten, they were flogged, and yet as midnight came, they were singing songs of praise to Jesus and they were praying out loud, so much so that the other prisoners wanted to hear what gave them that kind of joy as they're singing at midnight. One of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. And then an earthquake happened in the middle of the night. The walls were cracked, some of the chains fell off, the prisoners were tempted to run away. The jailer came running downstairs to check and see who had gotten away, and he knew that his life was on the line if they escaped, and none of the prisoners left. They wanted to hear the rest of Paul's story. And so the jailer stayed in, and the jailer put his faith in Christ that night too. The next morning, Paul ends up not only baptizing the jailer, but every member of his family. This is an amazing start to this church in Philippi. It is to this group of people and others who had been added to it that Paul writes of his confidence in God's work because he's seen God work in the hearts of these people in amazing situations right from the very first week when he entered the city of Philippi. So Paul spoke of a joy that comes through confidence. This is something we all want, this joy through confidence. If there's a joy that comes from confidence, even in the most miserable of conditions, who wouldn't want that? And who wouldn't dare to pick it up from the guy who's singing in jail at midnight because the joy overrides the circumstances that he's facing? So let's dive a little bit more into discovering what this is all about. Paul's first point of confidence was that the Lord had begun a good work in these Christians in the city of Philippi. This is the way that gospel ministry works. Someone shares the message of the grace of God in Jesus, but it's not the preacher or the deliverer of that message who does the key work. They're just a conduit. Individual people, sometimes whole families, put their faith in Jesus, but they don't initiate the work or make it happen. They simply believe. As the gospel is shared, God works in the hearts of people. There is a direct connection here. As his word goes out, God makes the word active and alive. He allows it to to work its way into our minds and our hearts, and we end up trusting him. So notice what Paul's confidence is in, that God has begun a new work in you, a good work in you. Do you actively have faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God and your Savior? then this is what the Apostle Paul was saying to you. God is at work in you. If you have faith in Jesus, I want you to say something out loud with me. God is at work in me. Can you say that? God is at work in me. Now, I want you to add some context to this. No matter how bad your week was, no matter how discouraged you may have been somewhere in the middle of this week, God was still at work inside of you. So I am inviting you to speak out a central truth that is greater than all your problems. No matter how tough my week was, God is at work in me. Can you say that? No matter how tough my week was, God is at work in me. This is an amazing principle that Paul is is delivering to us. He's, in, in, in a sense, inviting us to tell it to the evil one. We sang about this a little while ago this morning. Uh, You take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it to good. That's what we see here happening with, with the Apostle Paul and with others. He's inviting us to shout it to the world around us. No matter how tough things are, God is with me, God is at work in me, and he will not stop. 
Now, if you are what we sometimes call a seeker, that means you're exploring faith in Jesus. You're not sure whether you trust him yet or not, but you're interested and you're exploring. The Apostle Paul was a converted skeptic and former persecutor of Christians, and he was the one writing to let you know that becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is not simply a matter of adopting a set of beliefs. It is opening yourself up to the God who begins a new work in our hearts and our minds of people today, and he is in the process of making us more and more like Jesus. So this first thought about confidence is that our confidence is that God has begun a new work in us. Here's the second. It's the confidence that he will carry it on to completion. So here's that entire verse played out, Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So now look at how Paul finishes out that thought. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Whatever God starts in you, he is determined to carry it on, to continue it in other words, but not only to continue it, but to complete the work that he starts. This is the conviction that God never stops. He keeps on working until he completes what he has started within us. He just has to work overtime sometimes because we make things more difficult. Because you and I can frustrate that process. We know that God is faithful, he's steadfast, he's relentless, he carries on his work to completion, he finishes what he starts, but we are capable of making the process of all that change work more and more frustrating. How do we do that? Well, sometimes we lose focus, we walk on the wild side, we try to take the more difficult path, sometimes just out of interest, sometimes just out of perversity, sometimes just to see if God will really hang in there. But God never stops. He never stops completing what he has started within you and within me. Sometimes we just make him work overtime to overcome our stubbornness. Anybody identify with that? I've done that. You've done that probably too. Before we move on, look at one more detail from this verse. Notice how long God is committed to bringing this good work to completion. Until the day of Christ Jesus. All right, how long is that, you might say? Well, so far, it's been 2,000 years. Uh, very simply, he says, until the day when Jesus comes to fully set up his kingdom, when he comes to set the world right, when he comes to gather the faithful and take them to their heavenly rewards. He is committed to working that long on our behalf. So how greatly and how long is the Lord committed to his work in you? He won't stop until Jesus comes again. Guess what? The Bible also tells us that when we see Jesus we will be like him. So that means God's going to be working right up until that time, working on you, working on me, perfecting us, rounding off the rough edges. Why? He wants us to share in all the glory of who Jesus Christ is. We won't be gods, but we will be like Jesus. And that's an amazing thought. So here are the first two parts of this new confidence. You and I can have confidence that God has started this good work in us. If you put your faith in him, he has started that work. Second, we can have confidence that he will carry that work on to completion. Here's the third part of this confidence. Confidence that we are partners in the gospel. 
Look at verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. While God is at work within us, we now see how Jesus views Christians. We are partners in this gospel work. We participate in this partnership of the good news, the gospel. This observation comes as Paul looks back on the Christians who were in Philippi, his original audience for this letter. So when Paul and his friends first arrived in the city of Philippi, they were on their own. There were no other Christians in that city. He stayed for a while after getting out of that jail, and he built up the faith of that first group. They met in Lydia's home, and they continued to gather day after day. But then his ministry led him to several other cities, and years had gone by now. And so as he writes this letter, he's looking back, and he's grateful for their ongoing partnership in the gospel. Paul had started this, and then church members had furthered that work without him being physically present. Long after Paul had moved on, the church was more viable than ever. And this reality that the church is stronger in the years after he has gone fills Paul with joy. That's the joy that he's expressing there. This is what gospel partnership looks like. There are roles and there are seasons. Take a look at North River, for instance. A lot of people give me credit for being the founder of North River Church, but that's only partially correct. I'm the founding pastor, but I was part of a team. There was a a team of us that started this church together. And there are several people around here who were here the very first year when we started 34 years ago. And there are some others who were a part of this for a season, and they contributed in, in valiant ways for that season. In fact, several people played vital, critical roles for a season and then moved on. Sometimes God moves us around like chess pieces on a board all around the country or all around the world. And some served well until the Lord decided that their season was up and he took them home. And that's going to happen with some of us too. There are many more who've joined this partnership somewhere along the way. And we're always looking for people who share the heartbeat of North River who can be tender and patient with those who are kicking the tires and trying to check out Christianity and ask all of their tough questions and shake their fist at God and see if God will run away and guess what, he doesn't. And shake their fist at us sometimes to test us and see if we're the real thing. It's in a, it takes a unique kind of person. It takes an unselfish church to want to have a heart for the unchurched. And that's who you guys are. That's who we've become over time. And so we're always teaching and training and enfolding new people and new leaders and on the lookout for those who are carefully pushing in to see if this is real. And one day, the day will come when I'm no longer leading from the front of this room. And that will be a day for rejoicing. Because the Lord will make it clear that another pastor or another team of leaders will be leading North River into the next stage of our shared mission together. That's just the way that church and life works. 
Let me land on this partnership thought for a moment. If you are a member of this church, you are a partner in the ministry of the gospel. It's never been all about one or two people. It's about the whole group of us figuring out how we take all of the gifts and all the talents that God has given us and we work those together to become a vital force where people in our communities discover there's something different about doing church here. There's something different about being a part of this fellowship, that this isn't a live fellowship. It's not perfect by any means because we're in it, but it's a place where God is changing lives. If you're a member of this church, you're a partner in the ministry of the gospel. You're not just partnering with Todd and Christy and me as, pat- as pastors. You're not just partnering with our entire staff and overseers and deacons teams. You're partnering with the Lord Jesus himself. He is the Lord of the church, and you are partnering with God. That's what Paul is telling us. So this new confidence that we have is really a wonderful thing. We have confidence that God has started a a good work in each of us if we put faith in him. We have confidence that he will carry it on to completion. And we have confidence that we are partners today in the ongoing ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the big idea that I'm trying to get across today. Christian life is buoyed by the confidence that the Lord brings what he starts to such fullness that our lives abound in love and glorify God. Let's pick up that last part of this, abounding in love and glorifying God. Where does that come from? So the fourth confidence that we see here from Paul is a confidence that we will abound in spiritual fruit. Verses 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 1 tell us this. Paul says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that, that's a purpose statement, so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verses 9 through 11 detail a prayer from the Apostle Paul that is offered in this confidence. The key verb in this prayer is the word abound. We don't use that very often, do we, in our English language today? But to abound is a really good thing. He says, that you may abound. Uh, Something that is abounding grows and deepens and multiplies over and over and over again. In other words, it gets deeper and richer and it never stops in its capacity for more. So what will we abound in according to this prayer that Paul is offering? You will abound in love. In other words, you will gain a a love for God, a love for each other, a love for people around us that keeps growing and growing and gets deeper and richer. You will abound in knowledge and depth of insight. The more that you walk with the Lord, you will grow in this way. This is one reason why we need to be in church together, whether you're online or whether you're here in the building, and whether you can't just say this is optional. Because if you want to grow in depth of knowledge and insight, you need to be in the process of of learning together and putting yourself in a place where God speaks to you and challenges you. You will abound in discernment. This is a really good thing. So that we will know what is best, we'll know what is right, and be able to walk in those ways. And you will abound in the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Meaning 
the things that you set out to do in God's name, in serving him, will grow in this fruit of righteousness. People will see that there is a rightness and a goodness that is in you that is the work of God. And they'll be drawn to it. And in the end, God becomes glorified through all of these things. That's the other amazing thing. God becomes glorified because of our lives, because of the way we live, because of the way that we operate as a church, as this confidence grows and leads us deeper and deeper into the abounding love of God. All right, do you remember our focus over the summer? Uh, We spent 12 weeks studying in a series that we called All About Love. It's the longest time in 40 years of pastoral ministry that I've ever focused on the concept of of God's love. We called it our summer of love. Some of you even wore tie-dyed t-shirts on Sundays, and, and we got into it. We were having a lot of fun with this. Why did we focus on that? We were leaning into something that God longs to to develop in all of us and that he longs to develop right here. And it takes a lot of experimentation and practice for it to happen. And that is that we abound in the love of God. He's committed to causing us to abound this way. In the midst of our terribly divided world, we have these experimental labs that are in town after town and city after city. They're called the church. And the local church is the place where we practice how to love each other so that we get better at it for those who are tougher to love on the outside of the walls. That's part of his his goal for us is that this becomes the laboratory for love right here. Real love, not just mythical love, not just feel-good love, but real, deep, forgiving, passionate, grace-oriented love. And I love the way that Paul is saying this is part of our confidence, that we're going to abound in this love. It's going to get deeper and deeper, and the longer that you and I walk with Jesus, the more we're going to experience the depths of that love. It's better tomorrow than it is today. And so now our Identity Check series is designed to help us understand more and more about who we are in Christ. And part of that is that we are people who are designed to abound in the love of God through Jesus Christ that gets spread through the world. This is how the world discovers the love of God, through our laboratory of love right here called North River Church. To stand in love amidst the constantly shifting sands of our culture We need to know more and more who we are in Jesus. So, Christian life is buoyed by the confidence that the Lord brings what he starts to such fullness that our lives abound in love and glorify God. Last week I finished listening to an audio book that's called The Waiting it's an unusual book. It's a book that I normally wouldn't read, but it was on one of those lists where I got it at a lower price, and then I got hooked. The story's about a German Lutheran girl named Minka who grew up on a rural farm in South Dakota. Minka was born in 1911 to very strict Lutheran parents who rarely allowed her and her siblings to venture from their family farm. Minka had minimal schooling, milked cows, did chores, and worked all around the farm doing household things. When she was 16, her parents allowed her to go to a church-sponsored Sunday afternoon outing at a lake with an amusement park with a whole bunch of other 
girls and chaperones from the church. But when Minka and another girl went off to take a walk in the nearby woods, they were followed and they were sexually assaulted by two men they'd never seen before. And sure enough, Minka, who didn't even understand about the birds and bees yet, found that she was with child. In those days, young pregnant girls like Minka were quietly directed to a home for unwed mothers that was run by the Lutheran church. And they were led to give up their children for adoption. So the story follows Minka through the years after that one day of holding her little girl, whom she named Betty Jane. And as she gave up her child for adoption, she fervently held on to her faith that the Lord would give her daughter a better life and that Minka too would find the Lord's blessing. To make a long story short, God turned the hardships in Minka's life into wisdom, compassion, and faith. She married Roy, who was a World War II veteran with whom she had two more children. And life with Roy was hard. The war had left him with what today we would call PTSD. And there was no cure and there was no designation for it back then. And after a while, Roy's only relief became drinking very heavily. His drinking destroyed his career, put their children in dangerous situations. And eventually, because of it, Minka divorced Roy. But she never stopped loving him, never stopped praying for him. And every day she prayed for Betty Jane, this little girl that she'd only seen for one day and had given up. She wrote hundreds of letters back to the Lutheran home for girls, hoping to find just a few clues about where her little girl was or how she was doing, and no word ever came back. So Minka worked. She served through the nearest Bible-teaching church wherever she lived. She sang in the choir. Her compassion and willingness to serve others blessed her with great friends And she was beloved in her workplaces and in the churches where she moved. And every day she wondered about Betty Jane and she continued to pray over Betty Jane's life. She asked the Lord to fill Betty Jane with faith, love, and hope. Her life wasn't always easy, but she was content that the Lord had blessed her at every step despite the hardships. Eventually, the book begins to trace the story of another young woman named Ruth who was adopted by a Lutheran pastor's family and who was well-loved as the youngest child in that family. Known to Betty Jane only to her birth mother, Ruth initially was raised in Iowa, then moved to Minnesota, and lived on a farm where she and her husband raised four children of their own, one of whom became a NASA astronaut. As Ruth was getting older and into her 70s, one of her sons asked if she would be interested in finding out whatever happened to her birth mother. Given permission, this son plunged into Ancestry.com for several weeks. It became virtually an obsession for him. And eventually he found that Ruth's mother was still alive, living in California at the age of 94. What this son didn't know was that Minka had offered a prayer as she turned 94, asking the Lord just to allow her to see the daughter that she had given away one time. She said, if I can just see this daughter one time, I I, I won't invade on her life. I I won't try to, to take over in any way. But she just laid that out before the Lord as a request. And in the meantime, Minka kept serving where she was, even picking up a job in her retirement years, stacking shelves at a local Walmart type of store. And they loved her there. One day, Ruth's son called Minka and left a phone message. He asked if she was the same Minka who had been born in 1911, who had given her daughter away through the Lutheran home in 1928. And if she was, he wanted her to know 
that he was her grandson and that her daughter wanted to meet her. And then came the day when Ruth and a couple of her adult children flew to California to meet Minka and Minka's younger, youngest daughter. Not only was it a wonderful reunion, but the families bonded deeply and Minka and Ruth enjoyed another eight years together of faith and friendship in a mother-daughter relationship that didn't begin until one was 94 and the other was 77. And then Minka passed in her sleep at 102. The author of the book only reveals at the end that she was one of Minka's granddaughters whom she only met after that wonderful reunion. Despite the trauma of Minka's early life, the Lord had led her to an abundant life that just kept getting better despite the hardships. Here's the point of telling you that story. Christian life is buoyed by the confidence that the Lord is committed to bringing his work in you to such a fullness that no matter where you start with him, he will bring your life to abound in love and to glorify God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for stories like the Apostle Paul's and we thank you for stories like the story of Minka and Ruth. And you know that for some of us in this room, there are broken parts of our lives that make no sense. But Lord, here's what we're going to do. Right now, right here, we're going to offer to you even the broken aspects of our lives and pledge to you our faith, believing that you can allow us to live with the confidence that if we stay faithful long enough, we will see your hand at work in weaving together even the broken parts of our lives in such a way that love abounds and God is glorified. Lord, do it again. Do it again in the parts of our lives that have hurt us the most and where only you could bring glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.